0: I'm producer Joe Disseau, and a while back, we heard from a Chicagoan who had this incredibly interesting question. His name is Scott Colton, and he's with us here right now. And first of all, Scott, can you kind of recap your question for Curious City?
1: Hey, Joe, thanks. Listen, I love professional wrestling. I grew up watching professional wrestling in the 80s with Hulk Hogan, but I know before that era, Chicago had its own scene. And I would love to know what impact that professional wrestling had on Chicago and what impact Chicago had on professional wrestling. And I thought, who better to do that than WBEZ in Curious City?
0: Now, we've got to tell people that you're not just a question asker. You're also a fellow podcaster, and you happen to be. Boom, boom, coca-bana Boom, boom, coca-bana. From Maxwell Street in Chicago, Illinois. Weighing
2: 242 pounds. Colt. Boom, boom.
1: Yeah, I am a professional wrestler, born in the Chicagoland area. I live in Chicago. I've been wrestling for almost 25 years. I've wrestled all over the world. Japan, Australia, India, Puerto Rico, Arlington Heights. You name it, I've been there.
0: So in the spirit of pro wrestling, I feel the need to refer to you by your wrestling name, Colt. Is that all right? You know what? As a
1: question asker, my name is Scott. But if we're going to get into the business of professional wrestling,
0: my business is wrestling. My business name is Colt. And so you like to explore some of wrestling's history in your own podcast.
1: I love history and I love romancing about the ones who have done this before me. Why is that
0: so important to you? It's
1: important to know where you came from. Somebody paved the way for me to do this. And I want to know how hard it was for them, what the skills were they needed to do, what their path was like. I want to know about my people.
0: And so here's where we can help. You mentioned us getting into the business of professional wrestling in this episode, and that's precisely what we're about to do. We're going to take a dive into the inner workings of pro wrestling, a world built on sacred oaths, sleight of hand, outsized personalities, headbutts, and body slams. Now, in this episode, we're going to cover two things. First, we're going to take a step back, almost two centuries back, to learn a little bit about how wrestling first evolved in the U.S. It's actually key to understanding the eras that followed.
2: They had to travel around the country and usually be at a carnival or a small venue, like sometimes they were in taverns or bars.
0: Then we'll take listeners to the golden age of pro wrestling, mid-20th century, when Chicago, this brawling, bruising city, was in fact king of the ring.
3: Chicago was the headquarters of one of the primary professional wrestling organizations in the whole United States.
0: That's all coming up. Stick around. Curious City is supported by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com curiouscity today to get 10% off your first month. Throughout history, we've looked back to particular eras or places to understand the origins of the sports we love, why we play them, why we follow them. A big part of the answer might be deep inside us. It's that human drive for daring do, for competition, for triumph, and…
4: I think the thing that appealed most to me about wrestling, even at a very young age, was this very clear sense of right and wrong.
0: This is Rev. John B. Davis, a real-life minister who, in a former life, was professional wrestler Johnny Starr.
4: I was actually an English literature major in college, and so I read a lot of Shakespeare. And I don't know how any Shakespeare fan could not be a professional wrestling fan, because it's the same thing. It's morality play, and it's, it's dark versus light, good versus evil.
0: And Starr's got a point. Pro wrestling, the billion-dollar business of today that rakes in cash from cable networks and pay-per-view events, owes much of its success to that fundamental pull in human nature, our attraction to drama. Much like a play, pro wrestling is, in fact, a scripted performance. A Midsummer Night's pile driver, but a performance nonetheless. It's no surprise, then, that wrestling has been a part of American culture since our early days as a nation.
2: Amateur wrestling has been around for hundreds of years.
0: Pro-wrestling historian and author George Shire,
2: S-C-H-I-R-E,
0: has been a pro-wrestling fan since, well, since he was a kid, back in the 1950s. In
2: 1959, in September, I was eight years old.
0: He collected magazines and wrestling programs from all over the country. He got hooked. He's telling me about this tough guy he learned about. Came from downstate Illinois in the early 1800s. You might have heard of him.
2: Abraham Lincoln wrestled. Not professionally, but he was a wrestler.
0: It's said that over a dozen years, the future president, six foot four and thin as a rail, wrestled in more than 300 matches and, depending on which folklore version you believe, won all but one of them. His purported move of choice, a choke slam. Grabbing an opponent by the throat and slamming him to the ground. Ruthless. Abe's was a pretty rugged but amateur version of the sport. In the years after the Civil War, it took on professional elements in a uniquely American style. Pay attention as we lay out the elements of that style. They're the foundations of Chicago's golden age of wrestling and the sports entertainment it is today. So, two men—it was almost always males in those days— locked in grappling holds and flinging each other around a dusty ring. wrestling drew crowds from the farmlands and prairies, little towns and big cities. Farm boys and city ruffians. There was money to be made inside the ring and outside.
2: If you go back into the late 1800s, the early 1900s, they had to travel around the country and usually be at a carnival or a small venue, like sometimes they were in taverns or bars.
0: Did you catch that? Carnivals, the world of sword swallowers, fortune tellers, games of chance, all crafted to prey on gullible patrons. Envision carnival wagons pulling into towns across America, a cavalcade of charlatans, impresarios, and fighters unloading grimy, worn tents and rickety mechanical rides onto empty fairgrounds.
2: What the carnivals would do as they traveled around the country is usually they would have a strong man on the card, or they'd have a wrestler who would boast
5: that he could take on all comers. Back in those days, I mean, you know, it'd be like the sideshow.
0: Bob Brooks knows what he's talking about. He's a former small-time promoter and an armchair historian. He says wrestlers traveled as carnival attractions, tough-looking guys tossing other tough-looking guys around. And it was popular, especially in Illinois and throughout the Midwest. And just like a lot of other sideshow attractions, carnival wrestling matches had an element of illusion. A rigged game set up as entertainment in exchange for suspension of disbelief and some of your money. It was show business. But the price of admission wasn't the only money people would drop. There was a bigger scam at play.
6: They'd work it up to where they'd get people to bet on the matches.
0: Scott Teal is a pro wrestling historian who used to work in the biz, and he's published dozens of books on the sport through his Crowbar Press imprint. He explains how the grift would work. Carnival wrestlers would often work with other traveling wrestlers known as barnstormers.
6: They'd go from town to town and they'd send in guys ahead of time to start talking up the match.
0: The idea was to create some buzz about the fighters and maybe a chance to win some money. By the time the carnival came to town, the stage was set, and the townies primed for eye-popping feats of strength. Riling up the crowd was a carnival barker, weaving tales about their wrestlers and dangling incredible opportunities to any challengers.
2: And they'd agree to go five minutes with him or something like that. And you know the old story
5: in a carnival, if you could go five minutes with him or you could beat the wrestler. They could win a prize, you know, a cash prize generally.
0: And the audience could lay down bets, maybe on their hometown hooligan who could whip anybody in town maybe on the burly traveling rustler. The carnival barker would try to lure them into betting one way or the other. The barker knew something they didn't.
2: They would have a plant in the audience where some big old farm kid would come out of the audience, you know, and claim he's gonna be able to beat this, this wrestler.
0: What the audience didn't know is that the outcome was predetermined and both the rustler and the plant were in on the ruse. Both of them had laid bets as well, in secret, of course. And because the wrestlers would take on all comers, not all matches were shams.
2: The wrestlers that they had in the carnivals, they had to be able to protect themselves if they needed to, if some wrestler decided he was going to try to get cute on it. And what they do is they could break an arm or twist an ankle or break a wrist real quick on the guy before he ever knew what hit him.
0: The betting, the secrecy, the scams it all laid the foundation for what wrestling would become. The characters might change, but that human drama of good versus evil, that was bedrock. By the 1920s, wrestling had become more professionalized. Moving away from the flim-flam of the traveling carnivals and barnstorming circuits and into a more locally based system made up of small independent owners all across the country, known in the biz as promoters.
6: You had promoters throughout the state and each of them had their own individual towns.
0: People like this stocky guy out of Chicago named Fred. He was born Fred Koch and started out as a wrestler. A Chicago Tribune article says he began promoting wrestling cards in the back of his dad's tavern in Lincoln Park, then later at larger venues throughout the city. He changed his name to Fred Kohler because, you know, showbiz. Rumor has it, he once wrestled a 450 pound bear. Yes, a bear. And there were outrageous characters like Jack Pfeffer. Pfeffer came from a theater background and brought with him a sense of flair. He's credited with then wild ideas like tag team matches, now a staple in modern pro wrestling. He promoted women's wrestling, though generally considered a lesser card, a sideshow. Pfeffer discovered star talent, but he also trafficked heavily in gimmickry and exploited people from marginalized groups, much like the carnivals had, including little people and wrestlers with physical abnormalities, labeling them in dehumanizing ways. This all set the stage for what happened next. By the early 1930s, some promoters were making serious cash, but not everyone.
6: Especially if you only had one town.
0: And it could get cut throat.
6: When a town opened up, or if they saw they could go into a town and put another promoter out of business,
0: they'd do that. And a new system began to evolve. Pretty soon, a promoter like Fred Kohler, that bear wrestler from Chicago, could develop a home base and a circuit of cities and towns, regions even, a territory. Underpinning all of pro wrestling, be it carnival or barnstorm wrestler, small town or large territory promoter, was a sacred oath of secrecy. When you became a part of this culture, you stuck to some golden rules, including knowing when to talk about the business and when to keep your mouth shut.
2: Have you heard the term kayfabe?
0: Kayfabe, a tradition that carried on for decades.
2: Kayfabe
6: is what everybody adhered to. Back in the day when we tried to make people believe that pro wrestling was legitimate.
4: You would never smarten somebody up in other words tell them that it was a work
2: we never admitted that the endings were predetermined
4: well you would have had to kill me to get me to admit to that
6: you didn't talk about the business openly around anybody unless they were actually a wrestler or a promoter a referee yes the referees were all smart they had to be because they knew who was going to win the match even the wives the wrestlers would not tell their wives anything about pro wrestling other than that it was on the level I mean, we just flat out lied. I mean, to put it bluntly.
2: The vast majority of the wrestlers, if they ever admitted to somebody that what they did wasn't real per se,
4: then they would be blackballed from the business. And maybe worse than that. We thought if we ever admitted that it was a work, even though most people suspected it, that it would kill the business. And that, that
6: was kayfabe. It was like a code of honor. It was almost like the uh, Mafia code of omerta. You know, what happened in the Mafia stayed in the Mafia. And that's how pro wrestling was.
2: That's how it was.
0: Over time, though, there were people who broke kayfabe. Sometimes putting the industry in peril.
2: If you want to know a character, and a strange character, Jack Pfeffer.
0: Jack Pfeffer, that shady guy I mentioned earlier? he became become powerful with some promoters in New York.
3: Okay, what did I know about Jack Pfeffer?
0: That's former pro wrestler Lanny Poffo.
3: Just that um, he was the best
2: and worst thing to ever happen to wrestling. How about that?
6: He's created a lot of stars, and at some point, they pushed him out of the, out of the group.
0: And that's when he decided to flip on the industry in spectacular fashion.
6: He went to the newspapers. He would feed him information about who was going to win the matches on any specific
0: night before the matches took place. Newspapers that used to write about pro wrestling as a legitimate sport now looked at it as a sham. The bottom didn't quite fall out of the industry, but it sure shook its foundation. And Pfeffer used his reputation as a bad guy to get what he wanted, even if that meant blackmail.
6: He had a lot of power. A lot of promoters were scared of him because he would go into a territory and if they didn't play ball with him, if they didn't use his wrestlers, if they didn't uh, let him help and make any money, then they were afraid he'd expose the wrestling business to the people in in their town, or actually their whole territory.
0: After the break, we enter the golden age of pro wrestling and learn how TV and one visionary promoter made Chicago the epicenter of pro wrestling in America. Stay with us.
2: At 255 pounds, the world's most dangerous wrestler, Dick the Bruiser!
0: A young boy sits, glued to the TV set in a suburban Chicago living room. His name is Billy, and like a lot of kids, Billy is hooked by the spectacle before him. And Billy, also like a lot of kids, is rooting for his guy, and he tries to copy their moves. I thought what I was watching was completely real, and then my brother and I would wrestle, and he's
2: still mad at me to this day for... Doing wrestling moves on him that I was watching on television, and of course there were no disclaimers like "kids don't do this at home." I don't know;
0: it's it's not a very good tale to tell. Did you have a move that you would use, or did he have a move he would use? I don't feel legally um, (laughs) open to talk about that.
2: Oh my! Look at the punch
0: by the Bruiser. That's the kind of story I heard from nearly everyone I spoke with about pro wrestling. This very American form of entertainment caught their imaginations, and maybe a bit of their wild side.
2: When he takes a punishment, that's when
0: he's his most dangerous. But it wasn't the nascent era of carnivals or early territory battles we've been talking about that grabbed them. It's about what happened next in Pro Wrestling's evolution. First, a bit of background. By the 1940s, there were dozens of wrestling territories, all across the country. And they all pretty much ran on their own, which could get confusing for fans different rules, different wrestlers, and each of them had their own world champion. They'd
2: have a promoter that would claim to have the world champion. They would bill their guy as a world champion. There were all kinds of world champions, but really no recognition because a lot of times they didn't win the title from anybody. The promoter just declared he was the champion.
0: So it wasn't like the NFL or MLB today where everyone's playing for the same league, where there's one Super Bowl or World Series champ. Collectively, It was a hot mess. But in the late 1940s, two big changes jolted pro wrestling forever.
2: The real big bang, if you want to call it, took place after World War II. The start of the National Wrestling Alliance and the advent of television, which really took off and put wrestling on a national scale.
0: First, the National Wrestling Alliance, or the NWA, It was about as close as pro wrestling would ever come to the National League model. But they weren't banding together for the good of the sport. These were the biggest bullies getting together to push out the little guy and control the entire industry. A completely American story.
3: The NWA was a monopoly-like umbrella organization for professional wrestling.
0: Historian and author Richard Vycek.
3: Now, within that alliance were... Easily 25 or 30 wrestling promoters that each controlled a geographic territory. The NWA
0: was basically two things. A single, unified world championship title.
3: And all of those promoters would get together once or twice a year and have a meeting. Okay, who should be the champion?
0: And a syndicate that now had a stranglehold on pro wrestling in America. They decided that by working together, They would maximize all their profits, all their hold. That's William Corgan, a.k.a. Billy Corgan. The same Billy we heard just a bit ago. The kid enthralled with the wrestlers he saw on TV. And later, yes, frontman for the Chicago rock band Smashing Pumpkins. He's also now the owner of the NWA and a caretaker of its history. And they would be able to shut out anybody else making a challenge to them on any kind of local or regional level. They just boxed everybody out. It was, effectively, a cartel. Pretty soon, Fred Kohler and his Chicago operation would join its ranks. And I think within a year, they were being investigated by the U.S. government for antitrust. More about that later on. So, the National Wrestling Alliance, powered by decades of athletics, deception, and spectacle, is the first part of the Big Bang that altered pro wrestling forever. The second part made Chicago the focal point of the sport.
2: So you get to the end of World War II, you get to the late 40s, television is coming into vogue.
0: Television. In Chicago, the marriage of TV and wrestling owed its courtship to one promoter.
3: And the promoter's name was Fred Kohler. Chicago was the headquarters of one of the primary professional wrestling organizations in the whole United States.
0: Fred Kohler was a genial but bombastic character. That's according to historian Tim Hornbaker. He's written several books that touch on this era of pro wrestling. Kohler may have started his operation in his father's bar, but he was now booking his shows in premier venues throughout the city, had the top wrestlers under contract, and the Illinois State Athletic Commission, the governing body for all pro sports in Illinois, in his pocket. was already running chicago pro wrestling when in 1946
7: that was the first time
0: that professional wrestling went on tv well in chicago anyway and it was a big hit
2: but not every family could afford a television set so there were real stories of the one house in the block that had a television that on wrestling night they'd get together in the house and the neighbors would come over and watch wrestling. This will be the one ball with a
7: 30-minute timer. I've heard the stories where uh, downtown Chicago and that when wrestling came on, the old stores used to have the TVs right out in front of the window. Ringside International Amphitheater, Chicago and they all had wrestling on it, people would gather around outside the windows and watch wrestling. Boy, has this guy got a shiner already before he starts this match, and if he gets... And
2: that's how they used to promote it.
0: The pro wrestling show Kohler Created was an early version of what you'd see today with modern pro wrestling promotions like AEW or WWE. A lot of flair from the performers, athletic moves, and flashy maneuvers. A theatrical performance.
6: I will tell you, the people sitting around ringside, most of them were wearing suits and ties. You didn't have a lot of kids in the audience, and there was women, but everybody was dressed, and it was a real event.
0: Quite a leap from the carnival days. At first, promoters were worried that televised wrestling would eat into box office sales. It had the opposite effect. In time, Kohler was putting on a second weekly show, then a third, he saw into the future in a way that most people didn't. The TV shows were cheap and easy to produce.
5: They could do a two-camera shot on wrestling. One camera would be able to get the width of the ring where the wrestlers were going from side to side. And then another camera gave them more of an eye-level view, if you will. That's an ignominious way to be treated. Just picked up and dumped like a load of soft bread. As television came about, people were starved for something new. They wanted action. They wanted something more than just baseball.
4: There's got his shoulder up. One, two, three. Oh, oh. this is going to cause a little bit of a ruckus.
0: Just the thing for a post-war audience looking for an escape. But even with the NWA as a governing body and the growing popularity of television, pro-wrestling was largely regional. TV shows ran locally. It was good for business on a small scale, but wrestling needed something bigger, something or someone to leverage agreements among territories and harness the star-creating power of television.
4: Coming to you
7: from Marigold Arena in Chicago, Illinois, the wrestling capital of the world.
0: In 1949, Fred Kohler did something that seems normal now. He brought his TV wrestling show into living rooms across America.
7: And now here from the wrestling world is Fred Kohler.
0: Nice being here again. Keep in mind, though, this is way before cable television and streaming services. At the time, there were just a handful of national networks. ABC, CBS, NBC, and back then...
5: If you recall the old Dumont Network.
0: To be fair, you likely don't.
5: D-U-M-O-N-T.
2: Network.
0: In 1949, it was a budding network with semi-national reach.
3: He did a wrestling card at the Marigold Gardens.
0: A somewhat glamorous former ballroom-turned arena.
3: Which was on Broadway in Grace Street. It's actually pretty close to Wrigley Field. The show
0: was called Wrestling for Marigold, and it aired locally on WGN. In
2: case you didn't recognize him, Jack Brickhouse. And they put professional wrestling on pretty much as close as could be at that point in time on a national basis.
0: Now, this is at the dawn of the television age, and programming was new and, shall we say, of the era. And
2: you folks that are watching a show in Chicago and Cincinnati
7: and Detroit, have we got a show tonight? Have we got a show? Have we got a show? <laughs>
5: I would like to introduce... Fred Kohler brought about pro wrestling with excitement, and. That's what Dumont was looking for. So the two kind of just blended together really well. Ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, bud. Mustn't beat on his broccoli.
0: According to Dave Meltzer, editor of the Wrestling Observer, Kohler understood TV's strength. It was the power of television to draw, not just in your local arena, but
7: all over the country because of the national exposure. So that was, like, the key thing. Chicago promoter Fred Kohler's world championship match between Lufez, Boy in the Black Trunks, Buddy Rogers, the guy with the head scissors on the man in the black drums.
0: Kohler was bringing in big audiences and making tons of cash. And to give you a sense of just how lucrative pro wrestling was overall, historian Ed Wheatley recalled in a St. Louis PBS documentary,
5: There was more money made on television revenue for
3: wrestling than baseball, football, and basketball combined. not use your knee on Uncle Louie's Adam's apple. Chicago was it during those years. Fred Kohler called the shots and had significant influence in professional wrestling, not only in Chicago, but nationwide. He decided which wrestlers were gonna get the big promotion. Yes, who's gonna win or lose, who's going to be brought in, who's gonna be sent walking.
0: Kohler wasn't just powerful. He brought genuine smarts and innovation to pro wrestling. He was gregarious, funny, and always thinking ahead. And he had other ventures too, all connected to wrestling. He collaborated with promoters across the country.
7: He would book his stars to go to like Madison Square Garden or Amarillo,
0: Texas or St. Louis. And so he would get a cut of that. He ran a publication popular throughout the Midwest, Waylay magazine, Wrestling As You Like It. Everything was in service to his empire. Into the 1950s, Fred Kohler was on top of the world. Kohler knew pro wrestling history, and he knew he had to give his TV audiences drama and dash. What better way than to return to the sport's early days?
4: It's morality play. It's good versus evil.
0: The heroes and the villains, or in wrestling parlance... Baby faces and
7: heels.
0: Baby faces, like one of the earliest in the golden age of wrestling.
7: Vern always wanted, to, he, he used to sit with his grandfather and listen to wrestling on the radio, and he always wanted to be a wrestler. That's what he wanted to do, and that's
0: what he ended up doing. That's pro wrestling great Greg Gagne. And the Vern he's talking about is Vern Gagne his dad.
7: Well, I can, I'll i tell you the whole background story to it, how, how he got involved. You tell me when we're on the air and we'll start with that.
0: I'm recording. So I'm just going to record this whole thing and then I'll cut it later.
5: Okay.
7: So Vern started, he wrestled. He was a uh, three-time Big Ten champion. He was also an All-American football player at Minnesota and was drafted by the Chicago
0: Bears. But Papa Bear Hallis dumped him and sent Vern north to Green Bay and the Packers. In fact, In Green
7: Bay, he met one of his eventual competitors in wrestling, Dick the Bruiser.
0: We'll get to Bruiser in a sec. Vern realized pretty quickly football wasn't for him. For one, he made more wrestling on the side than he did playing football for the NFL. He started wrestling actually in Minneapolis in 1949. And he caught the attention of Fred Kohler, who saw something in him Hallis never did. And he said, Vern,
7: we'd like to bring you to Chicago. Uh, We're going on the network TV. And Vern showed up, and he said there was about 30 guys in the locker room. And Kohler came up to him, and said, Vern, here's what we're gonna do with you tonight. We're gonna dress you up as a Martian, and we're gonna you lower you from the ceiling into the ring. And Vern said, uh, he had some choice words for Fred, and basically, I won't say him on the air here, but he, he told him uh, no. And he said, I got my boots and my trunks, and if I can't make it in wrestling, I'll quit. But I want to go down to the ring, and you can bring these guys in, everybody here in the locker room. I'll wrestle them one at a time, two at a time, three at a time, and if I can't beat them all, I'll quit. Nobody would get in the ring with him."
4: Ladies and gentlemen, kindly refrain from smoking during the rest of the bout.
0: Vern's physique and genuine wrestling talent helped him win over audiences, and Kohler's national reach helped make Vern Gagne into a star.
4: In this corner, from Minneapolis, weighing 220 pounds, Vern Gagne.
0: If wrestling would continue as a morality play, the Baby Faces needed, yep, some heels. Vern's nemesis was a guy he had history with.
4: In this corner,
0: he would met back in his football days up in Green Bay.
4: From Green Bay, Wisconsin,
0: Bill Affles, a.k.a. Dick the Bruiser.
4: Weighing 248 pounds, Dick the Bruiser.
0: The headline from a 1955 article on him boasted, the Romans had their gladiators, medieval history had its mighty torturers, and we have the bruiser.
7: He had a, a great body on him for... Uh... You know, an athlete of that time, and he
0: was a tremendous linebacker. Just picture Bruiser, a hulking brick house of a man, barreling down on his opponent, ignoring the rules of the ring as he squares off to clobber his foe.
6: Usually the baby face was a good-looking young guy. That's why Bruiser was a heel for so many years, you know. He was exactly what they said, he was a bruiser, you know. He didn't look nice, you know. He looked like a mean old guy that would just beat you up
0: for your lunch money.
7: Well, I'll say this much, I think Dick the Bruiser's got, gun in about as bad a way as I've ever seen him.
0: And he didn't sound nice either. With a, quote, voice like a ruptured foghorn. In a temperament to match, Dick the Bruiser was foreboding. Fans loved to hate him. That's according to Richard Vychek, author of the definitive book on the brawler, Bruiser, the world's most dangerous wrestler.
7: There goes Bruiser with his backbreakers. Ganya kicking him on the shoulders. One,
3: two, three.
0: By the mid-1950s, Kohler was at odds again with the NWA. Disputes over championship belts and egos. But he forced them to compromise in major ways. Kohler seemed unstoppable. Until the winter of 1955. That's when the Dumont Network, embroiled in financial crises, unceremoniously canceled Kohler's Wrestling from Marigold show. The Dumont Network itself would fold within a year. Kohler's bread and butter was largely gone. Along with it, much of his power and influence over the pro wrestling industry. Then, in the spring of 1957, even WGN, his longtime Chicago broadcast partner, dumped him as well. Even as early as the 1950s, television had the power to give and take away. As Kohler's business was going down, the National Wrestling Alliance itself was ensnared in a battle with the feds. The Department of Justice had been looking into the NWA since its early years, and by 1956, put the smackdown on it for, among other things, antitrust violations and running a monopoly. And in the end, the Justice Department basically said, you know, you can't be doing what you're doing anymore. You can't be blacklisting talent. You can't be running this cartel thing. They stopped short of dismantling the NWA, but forced it to, at least on paper, stop squeezing out competitors. You might think that's the end of Fred Kohler's influence, and with it, Chicago's golden age of wrestling. But Kohler was resilient. He'd lost his stranglehold on the industry, but none of his grit or ingenuity. He'd rebound, but that's another story. What Fred Kohler had created on television during this golden age of professional wrestling is still the stuff of wrestling theater today. You can see it in organizations like the AEW, NWA, and WWE. Kohler brought his larger-than-life characters into living rooms across America, took audiences out of the everyday with over-the-top theatrics, taught kids like Billy, or any of the people we spoke with really, that there's comfort in simplifying life. Right versus wrong. Good versus evil. A folding chair to the noggin and a body slam to a sibling. But to kids like Billy everywhere, whatever you do, don't tell your parents how you broke that picture window imitating wrestlers on TV. Keep it kayfabe. So before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to ask our question asker this week, Scott Colton, a.k.a. Colt Cabana, just a few more questions. Because after all, we don't often get to talk to professional wrestlers on Curious City. So I thought I'd take advantage of this moment. Colt, I just want to ask you to talk about just a few of the things we covered here and how it all factors into today's pro wrestling. So like, all this talk about showmanship mixed with athleticism kind of makes me wonder, you know, for you, how much of pro wrestling is sport and how much of it is entertainment?
1: It's both. It's everything. It's a genre unlike anything in the world. I call it improvised sports theatrics in the round. Obviously, you have to be athletic. You have to be coordinated in order to perform these moves at the highest level. But you also have to be entertaining you have to be an entertainer in order to keep the people's attention and it's a hybrid
0: how do you think it got that way
1: well i know how it got that way people were were watching amateur wrestling matches that were going on for three hours and they were getting bored of their mind and some promoter you know in the early 1900s or whatever it might have been was just like we gotta spice this up a little bit and let's make this a little more entertaining
0: and a little less sporty why do you think so many people are drawn to professional wrestling?
1: Sport has some of the greatest storytelling ever. It's so much fun to watch the drama play out in a football game or a basketball game. And wrestling has the benefit of being able to present that same drama, except we can make the script for it. So we can play it out however we want to. It's not just chance or luck. And we're presenting it as if it is playing out in that moment, in a true way, but it's not. We're on the fix, and the goal is to make you, the audience member, think that it's happening in real time, for real.
0: What does it feel like to be in the ring, you've got your adrenaline pumping, what's going through your head as you're up there, and you're getting ready to be physical, and perform, and be an athlete, and also entertain?
1: I love going into a crowd, whether it's 25 people, or 15,000 people. And I've done both of them. And I love going in there and I love entertaining the crowd and I love playing with their emotions. And I do that through physicality, through the psychology that I use as a performer in order to emotionally move the wrestling audience. And a lot of people don't understand that. They think that we're just going in there and we're doing moves, but it's very calculated to get people to get very excited, to get people to get very high and also very low.
0: Our question asker has been Colt Cabana. Colt, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for the deep dive. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. It's produced by Jason Mark and myself. Adriana cardona McGigott is our reporter. Maggie Sivett is the digital and engagement producer for Curious City, and our Luminary fellow is J.P. Swenson. Kate Cahan edited this episode, and Alexander Solomon is Curious City's editor. I'm Joe Dassault. Thanks for listening.